UX Podcast Episode 125. Hello and welcome to UX Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbom. And we're balancing business, technology and users every Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. And today... We are interviewing one of the UX rock stars who... Rock stars? Yes, I was going to say... Legends. Legends, yes. But he really is a rock star without even trying to be a rock star. He, I mean, he is Mr. UX. He's, if you could define someone as the grandfather of UX... Yes. Then it is Don Norman. It is Don Perfect. Norman. Professor. Don Professor Norman. Don Norman. Donald Arthur Norman. Right, oh, you know his full name. Born you in... Uh, 1935. Yes, he actually mm. filled, he actually um, he actually turned 80 mm. um, around about the same time as we had a tweet Twitter conversation mm. um, about this interview. Exactly. We uh, did, it, was it was December 25. Yeah, it was Christmas yeah. Eve, yeah. wasn't it? Was it Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? It, it was may Christmas have been. Eve yeah. that we were chatting to him on Twitter. Yeah. And then he actually turned 80 the day after. Mm-hmm. And um, we fixed up eventually a time to talk to him. And yeah. I, I know, um, well, the first time I heard a talk by Don in person, or the only time in person, was um, at UXLX in 2011. Okay. Um, and it was a really excellent, it was a closing mm-hmm. keynote. It was an excellent finish to the, the, the day. And I still use one of the examples from that talk um, when talking to other parents about kids' tablet use and computer okay, use. Okay, cool. Um, he, he gave an example of how, um, well, you know that we don't know really what our kids are doing. We just kind of shout them, put that tablet down, stop playing with that computer. Well, he said, well... Yeah, they're spending too much time yeah, on that iPad. Yeah. yeah. And he said, well, you know, when he was little, his mum would never shout at him, Don, put that pencil down, you've drawn enough today. <laughs> because it was such open creativity. Mm. It was clearly a good thing. Mm. Whereas now our kids are kind of hidden behind their tablets mm. and we don't spend the time taking... We don't put the effort in to see what they're doing, mm-hmm. to understand when they're doing something creative or whether they're just playing Candy Crush. Yeah. Um, and that sticks with me. I use that example a lot. That's really good. So those of you who don't know who Don Orman is, he's uh, especially known for his books on design. And there's a book called The Design of Everyday Things that people tend to refer to. And he's, uh, I mean, he's widely regarded not only in the UX community, of course, for his uh, expertise in uh, design, usability engineering, cognitive science. And he's also the co-founder and consultant with the Nielsen Norman Group. And he's uh, in a bit controversial in his stance in saying that the design research community has had little impact in the innovation of products. And we get into that a bit uh, talking to him, I think. Let's talk to Don. So, Don, you are, without a doubt, one of the most influential voices in the UX and design industry, but also cognitive science. And... uh, some things that stand out for me uh, are, of course, how early you were writing about human-centered design for the digital, digital space, how patient you are with the rest of the world, uh, catching up with your ideas and thoughts. And, but perhaps most of all, was what I'm realizing is that you never seem to be satisfied with your own conclusions. You're always exploring new areas, redefining, questioning your own conclusions. So yeah. start us off. How, how do you stay so curious? Well, First of all, I'm not patient. I'm sick and tired of, <laughs> <laughs> of 
you know, crappy design of, of our light switches and the stove controls mm. and the, the trivial stuff and doors, mm. doors, doors. Mm. I mean, actually, I've been trying to understand the United Airlines lounge in San Francisco, which has these glass doors that you to enter into the seating area. And one side says push and one side says pull. Now, and they have the identical types of hardware. Now, of course, when I see a sign that says push, the first thing I do is pull it to see what happens. <laughs> and guess what? It, it works just fine. <laughs> and so it turns out it's one of these really nice doors. I kind of like them because you can push it or pull it. doesn't matter. So why do they need signs? Mm. I've been trying to figure this out for a long time. I but wonder, I'm just really annoyed because we keep making the same statements over and over and over and over again. And then each time a new industry starts, they say, well, we're different than everybody else. So, you know, we're going to ignore all that stuff you've done because we're different. And they make the same mistakes over and over again. And as you know, I recently wrote this diatribe against Apple, but it's not just against Apple. It's against Apple and Google and all, all these gesture systems where, oh, we love flat design. Well, that's okay, but you know, you're supposed to tell somebody what's possible and what the alternatives are. And there's a, some fundamental principles like discoverability. How do I discover what the actions are? Hmm. I look at these wonderful displays that I can swipe to the left or to the right or up or down or one finger or two fingers or three fingers or a single tap or a double tap or a long tap. And come on, guys, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and now we have 3D touch, and so we can do one more thing. Well, actually, that I like. Yeah. And here's why I like it. So how do I keep curious? Because it is true, we're getting new technologies mm. and we're doing new things that we never dreamed of before, and we have to learn how. And so as we start moving into virtual reality, VR, and I'm an axiom, I'm really excited by this. I've been a fan of VR for like 20 years. Mm. Um, it's not at all obvious how you control things. I mean... Yeah, it's easy to walk through the space. Actually, it's remarkably hard to walk through the space. I once did a wonderful VR experience, and it was an abandoned warehouse. And so I could, I could go any place I wanted and not bump into anything. But if you try it in your home, you walk a couple of feet and you bump into the wall or you bump into the furniture. So even walking around is hard. And um, how do you control it? You use gestures? Well, there are... Gestures are bad enough on the screen, but in the air, there's only two or three gestures that are kind of, kind of be universal. Lifting your hands up says more, which could be more stuff or louder or brighter or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and what else is there? There's not much. Hold your hands up in front of you means stop. Well, maybe not. And <laughs> I, I think that's a wonderful challenge. And um, various people are experimenting with things. And one of them is to have partial augmented reality so that you might see one of the problems with VR is you can't see your own body. And so if you move your hand, you have no idea what's happening. So adding a little bit of augmented reality so you can see the locations of your hands would also make it easier to do controls. And yeah, we might do the things like you do in Wizards, right? I wave my hand in the air and a menu shows up in the middle of the air and I can poke it. And that probably will get used, but we're not sure how yet to design it. So that's fun. Yeah. And the other part, as long as I'm on this diatribe, is we don't know what to do with it. So VR is wonderful. You can imagine it for games. Games because it's a it's a artificial reality, and I can let you walk through the space. But and I can imagine this Facebook 
I think it is great for social media to interact with the other avatars. And, you know, we've been, people have been writing about that for 20 years mm -hmm. in the various science fiction novels. And, but uh, think about telling a story. How would you tell a story? So the New York Times is experimenting with this and they, they get their news, they get their reporters, but they have to move to the space because you put a camera down and it's fixed. And so I can't, I can look around in all directions as if I were standing where the camera is, but I can't move because it doesn't work unless the camera moves with me. Mm -hmm. And so how you can tell a story isn't clear and what they're learning to do in news stories is it's a voiceover narration and I can look around me and I can feel what it feels like to be in that experience, but it's not really a story. Anyway, I'm excited by that. <laughs> I think I watched a I watched a program um, on the BBC the other week about virtual reality and and how that was being um, experimented with in the porn industry. That was a, it was a very interesting. Well, um, that's probably a driving force behind VR. Well, yeah, <laughs> and they were trying they were they were testing out some of the because um, was one of the problems with 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 porn and virtual reality is is the feedback mechanisms mm. <laughs> that it's quite a fundamental part of of human mm. interaction. Actually, at least. yeah, but it, I think they're going to have body suits with vibrators all throughout. And, that was uh, basically what they were experimenting with, mm. this kind of tube-like things mm. um, that you... Um... You know, that's that is a bunch of science fiction writers have already, mm. you know, played with that. And mm. if you and you can imagine that for non-porn VR, except um, even putting gloves on, uh, which is one way of getting better tactile feedback on the hands, is... Uh, I don't know if people are really always want to put on, they got to put on this helmet and then gloves and then maybe a bodysuit. Well, actually, the, the realistic writers who have written about VR do have the people get into a bodysuit. But anyway, but porn, by the way, has actually been the driving force in almost every new medium. Uh, even when the first books came out uh, with you know, with movable type, porn was one of the big things. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a big growth of the VR, of the uh, video cassette recorder industry. And, uh, um, well, you know, it's a good broadband. Time. Yeah. <laughs> cuts, and it cuts across all cultures. Yeah, gambling and, gambling and porn yeah. are two of those driving forces that we seem to return to. Speaking of what you said there, so we, we don't even know what to use it for. And so everybody's trying stuff out with it. Uh, one of the core concepts of design that you've, you've always, uh, well, talked about is uh, how uh, you actually have to go out and observe users and after that start building stuff. So you do it the other way around. You don't build stuff first and then see how it works in the real world. You go out in the real world and observe users and then, or people. You observe people uh, and their habits and behaviors, and then you, you understand what to build. But how, how, when you're trying out new products... How much, how much should you build? How do you know how much to build before you actually go out and test it in the real world? Well, well, well. let me use that as a starting point for another direction. Mm -hmm. you, you said that um, I'm always questioning mm -hmm. my own statements yeah. and rethinking them and sometimes contradicting them. Mm -hmm. So let's think about this statement because I've been thinking a lot about this. So mm -hmm. there's a procedure that's just called... In the design world, we have something called human-centered design and design thinking, and in the parts of the design world, I inhabit, these are kind of the same. 
And the argument is we have to design for people. Well, that makes good sense. I have to understand how people use it. And moreover, we, after, as we're doing our designs, we do rapid prototyping, test, and modification. Um, we, the agile programming model uh, can be used for this, although a lot of the agile programmers uh, don't understand it. Hmm. Um, but the, the, here's the real issue. We say, first go out, let's make sure we're solving the right problem. So let's go out and take a look at what people are doing today and try to understand what their real issues and their real needs are. And then I talk about the need for doing you know, ideation and rapid prototypes and iteration, etc. So let me tell you why all that's wrong. First of all, it's right, okay? It makes good logical sense. And if you're starting, and, and it's a good way of doing lots of things, but... In the real world, there are lots of things against it. First of all, <laughs> I just gave a talk to a bunch of educators who were trying. Their, their job was to train people to go out and get jobs as programmers, coders, okay? Mm. And I gave them a talk on design thinking and how to get, make sure we solve the right problem and how we do observations, how to do the rapid prototyping and testing. And, and then I met, I gave four small workshops where I met with smaller groups instead of 300, 400 in the audience, that was uh, about 50 at a time. I did it four times. And after a while, I realized that the advice I was giving would get their people fired. Huh, yeah. okay. What I was talking about was great mm. for the research community and great for a company that is thinking of launching a new product or that knows that their existing products are deficient and they want to make them better and they have time. Uh, but if you got hired as a programmer and you sit down and you say, oh, I'm ready to go, I know all this stuff, I've been doing it all in school, and then your boss came over and said, here's your first assignment, and you said, well, how do you know that's the right problem? <laughs> you wouldn't last long. Hmm. Um, so. Uh, first of all, that kind of practice doesn't work for the programming community. Second, what does work, though, is human-centered design, that as they're doing the coding, they should actually be thinking about who's using it, and they should understand those people. And it's a good idea if you can go visit and talk and work and understand what their backgrounds are. Just like I... I have this problem. I was asked to give this keynote for this big conference, but I was the opening keynote. So I really didn't have much understanding of the audience. Oh. And then afterwards, I really like to be the last keynote because then I can listen to the audience and drink <laughs> them and things and, and get a feeling for what they view. I, I wanted to talk about how you, know, how you should learn and how important learning is and understanding. And, <laughs> and they told me our students don't want to learn and they don't want deep understanding. They want a job. And that they have to, that these, well, these were not the elite universities, the elite research universities, which is what I'm used to. These were the lower level universities that train the hundreds or thousands or maybe tens of thousands of people who go out and do programming. They're not the ones who are going to invent the next new brilliant thing. Well, they may, but that's not what they're being trained for. Yeah. And so, um, but that's why I had to revise what I was doing. It's human-centered. Uh, it's human-centered. So teaching them that is great because then they might actually have a second job possibility. It's a little bit more in user experience design, not just programming. But now let me keep going. 
Suppose yeah. that you, you are skilled in this and your company does understand human-centered design and design thinking and so on. Well, there's Norman's law. Norman's law is the day the product team is assembled, it's over its budget and behind schedule. <laughs> yes. And that's so true. It is. Always. Yeah. Uh, always. Always. Yeah. And so you say, I really want to go out and look at, you know, you want to revise this phone. Well, let's go and take a look at what's being happening in Sweden, which is different than in China, which mm -hmm. is different than in Africa, which is different than in the United States, actually. Eastern United States is different than West United States. College students are different than business people. So can I go look? And they say no. And you explain why you, it's really good to do this. And your, your boss says, I, I understand. You're absolutely right. No decision. But we don't have time. Yeah. Next time you can do it. But of course, it never is next time the same issues. So, so you can't do this stuff beforehand. And my argument is that you should have a separate team in the company that's always doing it. And so therefore, when it, because you know the kind of products your company is going to be building. So when the next product team is assembled, they can come forward and say, hey, we already have all this understanding and here's, here's what we can tell you. Mm. Okay, one more thing and then I'm finished, unless you <laughs> provoke me. So uh, in VR or in some new discipline where we have no clues of what's going on. What do you go and watch? What do you learn? And well, I actually wrote an article with Roberto Verganti. He's a professor in the Politecnico in Milan. And uh, we talked about incremental and radical innovation. And the argument basically was what I'm talking about in human-centered design and observation and so on is wonderful for incremental improvements. Because mm. we can go out and watch people doing the tasks that we want to support and we can see how we can do it better. Mm. And so we make small improvements. Um, usually when you go to design school or when you get your first jobs, you want to change the world. You want to do something radical. And I'm saying, you know, there aren't very many radical changes in the world. It's, I don't know how many you're going to live through in your lifetime, a hundred or something. Well, a hundred over your lifetime isn't very many, not per year. And most radical innovations completely fail. And even the ones that succeed take 20 or 30 years. Gestures, you know, Apple introduced gestures with the first iPhone. Uh, well, yeah, but gestures have been in the laboratory for 20 years mm. and people have been working with it. And the same with VR. It's been around a really long time and it's, it isn't, it hasn't even been released commercially yet. It's just barely coming out this year. Yeah. And um, it takes a long time. So radical innovation is very different and it comes from anybody. And I think actually the best way to do radical innovation design world is called doing research through design. That is stop thinking just go do something <laughs> yeah I like and that. you'll be surprised how much you'll learn you know mm. that's what the vr people were doing i really applaud the new york times who had no clue so they said okay let's just go and film things and let them out release them to the public and let's see let's learn and mm. that's what they're doing and so i'm when it comes to something brand new where it's hard to explain to people and they, you have no idea and it's something you can't watch what they're doing today that's similar because there is nothing similar. All right, let's just throw it out and watch and learn. 
So I think maybe this is also a challenge for, or I see this as a challenge for the, the, the large or existing incumbent organisations that they, they then inherently struggle to innovate in the way that you're talking about because of the, the, the inbuilt conservative nature mm. of an existing organisational culture. Actually, I've been making an argument that I'm sick and tired of design thinking. <laughs> it's time we started doing design doing. That, uh, nice. Yeah. The thinking part is the, you know, IPO and the D school and, and, and the design schools around the world, they love design thinking because it's fun. You can be a voyeur, you go and you watch people and then you go and you try these ideas, you do a rapid prototype and you come up with a brilliant solution. And then you have a, a presentations at the end of the class, or maybe you show it, you present it in a design contest and you win prizes. And that's it. Nothing ever happens to it. True. Because the hard part is, you know, it may be hard to come up with good ideas, but it's even harder to actually do something with it, to mm. produce a product. That's really hard. And we got to start focusing more on getting things done, producing real products. And that's, that means you can't just stop after when you're finished designing. You have, first of all, you better get the salespeople and the service people and the, the engineering and the designers all together in the very beginning. So everybody under, everybody understands all their different concerns. Now, you may have a lot of designers and only one or two engineers or marketing or service or whatever in the beginning. And as you progress, as the designers kind of try to kind of finish up, then you move to more engineers and maybe just one or two designers and you start increasing maybe the other people. And so you, but you have all the way through continual representation because otherwise the designers, even when they finish and they say, okay, now build it. And the people trying to build it say, this is stupid. Mm. <laughs> and this, and the marketing people say, nobody would buy it and so on and so forth. So, and mm. everybody thinks the other people are stupid mm. and no, it's not. It's just that everybody has a different view of the product. And you want to know which one is correct. Well, it turns out they're all correct. They better be easy to manufacture. Better be, it better be something people will actually buy. It better be something that fulfills their needs. It better be beautiful. It better be reliable. It better be inexpensive. And a lot of those are incompatible. But if you're all in the room together, you can work it out. Yeah. So I'm really a fan of design doing, and that's, and that's where I'm putting a lot of my emphasis in the coming year or two. Okay, interesting. You've been always always been ahead of of uh, before we even come up with terms like the concept of lean UX. A lot of the, a lot of that stuff you were writing about even in the invisible computer in the early nineties. Uh, but how do you feel about this? There are so many words that are littering our our space, like um, lean UX. And then how do you feel about the word minimum viable product? Because that seems to come close to what you're talking about right now. MVP. Uh. You know, I've introduced a couple of words into the vocabulary. Uh, affordance. Mm -hmm. I didn't invent affordance. J.J. Gibson did, but I introduced it into design. And uh, boy, did it get misused. And then I, in, I introduced the phrase user experience. Yeah. When I joined Apple in 1993, I became the user experience architect. Um, and boy, has that word been misused. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cognitive engineering, well, that still sticks around. And... Um, I mean, lean and minimum viable product and are basically about focus. And I'm a big fan of that. Mm. 
But what's happened is, again, these things get misinterpreted. Agile is a good example of something that if you actually read the way it was developed and you watch the way most people do it today, it's, it's not the same. With Agile, people say, oh, that's fast programming, right? Here's, here's assignment, let's start coding on day one. We're going to have a rapid sprint. We're going to do a sprint for a week or two weeks. And we take a little piece and we start doing it. Uh, wait a minute, that isn't how Agile works. How do you know what you're actually building? Who are you building it for? Uh, you know, what is this product about? But no, the programmers want to get going on day one. Mm. You're not supposed to get going on day one. You're supposed to get going when you understand what you're trying to do. And then you're also supposed to use each sprint to give you feedback. Um, not so you can come and do the next sprint on the next part of the product, but maybe you want to even throw away what you just did and redo it in a different way because you, the neat part about the sprint is that you do a small little piece. It's it's the minimally almost viable product, <laughs> mm. but you can test it and you can get feedback about whether it works or not. People forget that. And my experience with the people who, the startups who say we're using minimum viable product principles, first of all, they keep adding extra features because they can't resist it. Mm. That isn't minimum. Mm. And second of all, forget the word viable. Mm-hmm. They think minimum viable product means minimum product. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, but let me tell you, if you put out a shitty product, you don't get a second chance. It's better to put out a product that people say, wow, I love this, but, but you know, I wish I could do this one other thing. Or it isn't quite exactly what I need, but it's really close. If that's what people think, you've won. Because they love what you're doing, and now you can come back with what they're asking for, and they, oh, wow. They'll keep asking for more and more, but that's a different issue. But as long as they keep asking, you're, you're wonderful. But if you do a crappy job, nah, we'll go off to somebody else. That's kind of classic storytelling, or theater, isn't it? You leave the audience wanting more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Leave them wanting more. Yeah. You have to make sure we do that on this podcast. So, okay, thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> So was that at the end? <laughs> did he just hang up on us? Are you, do, are you wanting more? <laughs> <laughs> of course, Don did not hang up. <laughs> but this is a... We'll play along. Yeah. This is perfect. It is. You'll get more of this in the part two. Which will be out next week. Yeah. Um, and in part two, we um, carry on talking to Don about more excellent topics, um, including, um, is technology making us dumber or smarter? Mm-hmm. Um, we also look at Living with Complexity, which is the title of one of Don's books. But in particular, Don takes us through a, a practical example of, um, of, of uh, big data design medicine mm. and healthcare um, and, and how that can pan out and, and should mm. pan out. He's actually diving into just complex problem in his research right now. He's building yeah. a lab at UCSD around complex problems. I mean, so it's a fascinating the curiosity of this man is just amazing. It's endless. <laughs> and it was fascinating to talk to him about it. And then we finish off um, part two with our heptascale challenge. Right. And he gives some great answers to mm. our one to seven questions. He, he always gives great answers. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to it. To keep, to keep, in, to keep tuned in. For, do you tune mm. in to a podcast? Of course you do. You tune in. Yeah, okay. I guess. I so, don't know. So tune in to part two um, of our interview with Don Norman. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Mm.